In 1990, Ramdasha Bixim was living in suburban New Jersey. Bixim was 14 or 15 years old at the time. They were feeling isolated as one of the only punks and one of the only black people in their community. But they had a friend who moved to the Pacific Northwest. She knew I was kind of struggling in high school, just being miserable for a number of reasons. And she sent me a bunch of zines and that really inspired me. Um, she sent me Jigsaw and Bikini Kill zine and I think Girl Germs. Girl Germs was a zine made by the members of Bratmobile. Bikini Kill drummer Toby Vale did the zine Jigsaw. The packages that arrived in the mail from the West Coast were a lifeline. They inspired Big Seam to create their own zine called Gunk. In the early 90s, when Riot Girl was just gaining momentum, zines played a crucial role. At first, zines were the only form of media reporting on Riot Girl bands, meetings, and political organizing. And for many young women, self-publishing was a lot more accessible than starting a band. In Gunk, Big Seam started out focusing on their interests, skateboarding and punk. They hoped to empower other femmes to skateboard. They also ended up writing about their experiences as a black person growing up in a predominantly white, upper middle class community. And then started doing like zine reviews, band reviews, going to shows, interviewing people. And that's how I became pen pals with Toby Vale and Allison Wolf and Kathleen Hanna. And then it sprouted. And I mean, this was all before cell phones and everything. So like we were, we wrote letters. So that's how I had a whole community that was like beyond where I grew up. There was a Riot Girl manifesto circulating at the time. Big Seam reprinted it in one of their zines. Because us girls crave records and books and fanzines that speak to us. That we feel included in and can understand in our own ways. Because we want to make it easier for girls to see, hear each other's work. So that we can share strategies and criticize, applaud each other. Because we must take over the means of production in order to create our own meanings. Because viewing our work as being connected to our girlfriends, politics, real lives is essential. If we are going to figure out how what we are doing impacts, reflects, perpetuates, or disrupts the status quo. Because we don't want to assimilate to someone else's standards of what is or isn't good music, or punk rock, or good writing, and thus need to create forms where we can recreate, destroy, and define our own visions. Because we know that life is much more than physical survival and are patently aware that the punk rock, you can do anything idea, is crucial to the coming angry girl rock revolution. Which seeks to save the psychic and cultural lives of girls and women everywhere. According to their own terms, not ours. Because doing slash reading slash seeking slash hearing cool things that validate and challenge us can help us gain the strength and sense of community that we need in order to figure out how bullshit like racism, able-bodyism, ageism, speciesism, classism, thinism, sexism, anti-Semitism, and heterosexism figures in our own lives. Because we are angry at a society that tells us girl equals dumb, girl equals bad, girl equals weak. Because I believe, I believe, I believe with my whole heart, mind, body that girls constitute a revolutionary soul force that can and will change the world for real. For real. 
Bixim also started a band called Gunk, and in 1992, they played at the first Riot Girl convention in Washington, D.C. That's when Riot Girl became three-dimensional for them. And I got to see all these bands that I had been, you know, reading about in scenes and buying their seven inches and records and tapes. While attending the convention, Bixim stayed in a punk house in D.C., that was also something they'd only read about in zines. I remember it like got broken into in the night that we were living there because the house was like deep in the hood somewhere, somewhere where like a bunch of white punks should not probably have been living. Despite the break in that night, they still managed to have a pretty good time. There was a show in that house that night. And I remember like Kathleen was like go-go dancing. And yeah, it was just fun to like have the kind of like wild experience and just like be in the spirit of the time, you know. Bixim says that part of what made Riot Girl fun was feeling like you were part of a secret crew. We had secret meetings. We had secret letters we wrote to each other. But the mainstream media was starting to get very interested in these secrets. A USA Today reporter came to that 1992 convention and, according to Bixim, the resulting article included their home address. And so I got mail like garbage bags full of mail for years of people like wanting my zine and I just couldn't keep up with it. I'm Fabi Reina, founder of She Shreds Media, and this is Starting a Riot. Twelve years ago, I started She Shreds, the world's first print publication dedicated to women and non-binary guitarists. The first issue was actually a zine. And somehow, it feels like as women or gender-expansive people in music, zines just find you. The first zine I remember reading had guitarist Des Ark on the cover. I'd never seen a woman guitarist on the cover of anything. That was my introduction to self-made media. I found a space where I could share and distribute my truth, ask questions, and collaborate with others on finding answers. And although it feels intuitive, making a zine is actually a pretty labor-intensive process. We asked Ramdasha Bixim and some of the other people we've been interviewing to tell us a bit about what it takes to put a zine together. I think I did have a typewriter for part of the time, but when I started doing the zines, I was computer, so I'd write stuff on computer. And, then... and I would sort of like change the margins to be the right sizes so that I could, when I printed it out, I could cut and paste it into a zine. A lot of the text was handwritten. A lot of people would painstakingly type out their missives and their manifestos on typewriters. So there'd be a lot of crossed out words or mistakes, tons of mistakes. Collecting clip art. Sometimes, you know, hand drawing. Drawing a lot of the drawings myself. Cut pictures out. I would hold the copier door open. I would push the button and then I would close it so that it would create this kind of um, ombre effect on this piece of paper that I would then cut up and use in my zines. Kind of collage with it. Creating that kind of messy, unprofessional uh, look. They weren't really meant to be pretty or this was more like scribble, scribble, scrap, scrap. <laughs> Here you go. I love cutting things up and sticking them down with glue and moving them around and just playing with space. I just did the like eight and a half by 11 fold over. Crowding the page or making a lot of negative space. I love doing all that stuff. And then I eventually got, you know, the right kind of stapler. 
for zines. Access to a copier is, is really important. You know, you'd kind of rely on someone having a parent who worked at an office that you could kind of sneak into in the middle of the night. We had a friend who worked at the Kinko's. She worked the uh, middle of the night shift and she would have punk shows at the Kinko's and she would also let all the punks come in to make free copies of our zines. I would sneak the photocopier in the library and that's how I published my zine that way. Self-publishing has a long history, of course. Zines, or fanzines, first popped up in the 1930s, when science fiction fans started creating their own stories. These small publications really took off in the 70s when both punk and copy machines started to become ubiquitous. The very first thing to be called Riot Girl was a zine. Sarah Marcus is a writer and a scholar, and she's the author of Girls to the Front, the true story of the Riot Girl revolution. She's talking about the zine that Bikini Kill lead singer Kathleen Hanna created in the summer of 1991. The band was spending the summer in D.C. and wanted to connect with other young women in the punk scene there. They decided that the first way of, of finding people and, and building connections was going to be a zine. And so the very first zine was called Riot Girl, R-I-O-T-G-R-R-R-L. It was a single sheet of eight and a half by 11 paper folded in quarters. And it just had like a couple little scene reports. And I think there was like an announcement there was going to be a show. And they put out two more issues of that scene over the course of the summer. Drummer Toby Vale remembers reading some of Hannah's early zines and being really impressed. You know, she was actually questioning uh, binary thinking. And it was like postmodern writing. And it was actually very good. Zines were written for a limited audience of friends and friends of friends. I mean, in an era before anything resembling online social media, where nobody had sort of profiles to tell people who they were or timelines to say what they're thinking about in the moment, like the zine is the way that you communicated with your community about who you are and what's important to you, what you're thinking about in the moment, what you're listening to, what you're reading. That's what Ramdasha Bixin was doing with Gunk. Allison Wolf of Bratmobile remembers Riot Girl zines being personal and confessional. Girls talking about things that had happened to them, whether it be sexual violence, domestic violence, just, you know, whatever sexist experiences they'd been through. Sometimes people would write letters to us after reading the zine, and sometimes we'd print the letters. The zines had a kind of shared visual language as well. A lot of Riot Girl imagery kind of had to do with this virgin horror complex, that kind of contradiction of what's expected of women. So I guess sometimes things would be a little cutesy, but then all of a sudden they'd be like violent or sexualized as well. People might print 25 or 50 copies of a zine. These carefully crafted DIY projects were passed from hand to hand, traded and treasured, mailed to pen pals or left behind for someone else to pick up and discover. And in this way, the word spread about Riot Girl. The media at the time wasn't really covering alternative culture. I didn't think. I mean, I didn't see much of that. And so we definitely did have to kind of take over the means of production to have a voice to represent ourselves. And so zines were you know, have always been kind of the punk way. So yeah, you know, you didn't just like cut and paste and write things and, um, and it was fun. It's very tactile and zines were very, very tactile and urgent at the time. 
Being part of a band or starting a Riot Girl chapter might have seemed out of reach for many teenagers. There were logistical and financial barriers to both. But zines were a bit more accessible. A zine might cost a dollar or two, and they were not expensive to create. Even for people who grew up far away from Olympia or DC, zines were available through the mail. That's how Ramdasha Big Scene became part of the Riot Girl Secret Society all the way from New Jersey. But they were one of only a few people writing about race. A 2015 Vice article about the New York University Riot Girl collection of zines refers to Big Seam as Riot Girl's black friend. And Big Seam says that's not too far off. Sometimes they end up feeling like a footnote in the history of the movement, and it bothers them. People get erased. You know, and I think that actually happens with Riot Girl and Punk, where it's like, well, there was just one, Ramdasha. There wasn't. There was a lot others, too. There's a lot of people that were influenced, and there's a lot of people that were, like, there, too, you know? Coming up after a break, we'll dive into the story of a young Vietnamese refugee who founded a zine that ended up connecting punks of color everywhere. Mimi Tiwin created a zine as a response to the erasure of people of color in punk and riot girl. You can say that I am an old punk who teaches feminist theory. She has a big title. She's an associate professor and chair of gender and women's studies and Asian American studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I want to spend a good chunk of time on her story here because she ended up creating an important space for punks of color to talk about race and racism in their own words. Nguyen was born in Vietnam. When she was a baby, she and her parents came to the US. This was 1974, just before the fall of Saigon. You know, everyone's seen those kind of very ubiquitous photos of Vietnamese, South Vietnamese fleeing Saigon in those last few days, right? The people who are trying to get on that helicopter on that roof and people crowded into cargo holds and stuff like that. So that was us. The family eventually settled in a suburb of Minneapolis. She remembers that there were maybe four Asian kids in her entire elementary school. Wynn and her brother were two of them. I was an outsider. I was a weird kid. We were poor. All our clothes came from church basement rummage sales. Everything was secondhand. And I remember making certain kinds of conscious decisions to embrace being an outsider. When she was a teenager, Wynn's family moved to San Diego, where she started reading Maximum Rock and Roll. This long-running zine still exists in digital form, and it was one of the most widely distributed zines in the world. It's been around since the early 80s and has always been devoted to covering the punk underground. Wynne found some back issues at a store called The Black Cat. She remembers that she asked her dad to take her there to buy striped tights. And it was from those earliest issues that I learned that punk was full of people who cared very much about state violence. It was really reading this one column by this musician, Jane Guskin, who was in a band called The Yeasty Girls. But she wrote a column for Maximum Rock and Roll, which is how I learned about uh, the how the U.S. was supporting authoritarian regimes in Guatemala. And that's how I also learned about a more radical feminism that I than I found um, previously on my sort of local library shelves. 
Reading Maximum Rock and Roll, she started to see that punks were very political and were not only making music, but running venues, creating DIY record labels and zines. And this subculture seemed like a place she could feel at home. Being a refugee, encountering punk actually made a lot of sense. You know, discovering punk was absolutely how I processed understanding myself as an outsider in this country. Wynne says she felt like an outsider in a number of ways. As a refugee, as a non-white person in a majority white community, as someone who came from a poor family, and there was something else too. I definitely felt like I wasn't doing gender properly. I definitely remember thinking that I was not good, quote unquote, at being a girl. So of course, she was ready for Riot Girl. She first heard about it from other kids at school. And then I was like, oh, okay, here it is. But ultimately, Wynne's relationship to Riot Girl was complicated. I felt that the intervention that Riot Girl was making into the scene was a necessary intervention for challenging the gendered politics of the scene. But politically, I didn't always feel like I was on the same page just because I had my eye on a critique of state violence and, and empire in a way that, you know, it wasn't necessarily not a part of Riot Girl, but it was definitely not central to Riot Girl, right? By this time, Wynne was deep in the Bay Area punk scene. She was volunteering her time to Maximum Rock and Roll, as well as a record store and community space called the Epicenter. You know, one of the most uh, important moments for me in terms of my own sort of punk history was when I made the um, evolution of a race riot compilation scene. She started Evolution of a Race Riot in response to her own experience of racism at Maximum Rock and Roll. They printed a column that included a racist and sexist trope about Asian women. Wynne wrote an angry letter in response, outlining all the ways that the original column was hurtful and wrong. And the columnist's response was to write a follow-up, attacking her specifically in ways that were both racist and sexist. Maximum Rock and Roll deemed the second column satire and printed it despite the zine's policy against racism, sexism, or homophobia. So I felt very betrayed, uh, very angry. I felt alone. And I felt like I was being evicted from the punk scene, right? I had made this a home, and then I was without one. And, and people were very, they didn't know how to react to this column coming out about me in this international punk magazine, right? The Punk Bible. So I really felt like, you know, because of this, I was done with punk. But instead of quietly exiting the scene, Mimi T. Wynn did something else. She started seeking out other people of color in punk, through word of mouth or through zines. She wrote to them and asked them to send in submissions for this compilation she was putting together. She called it Evolution of a Race Riot. And I started just receiving in this kind of like snowball effect, these really intense, like multi-page, handwritten letters from kids of color in the punk scene or in goth scenes or whatever that were just spilling their guts and their feelings and their fears and their anxieties and their worries and their anger. And so I was just getting these like intense confessions and manifestos from all these punks of color from all over the place. And 
like it really fortified my sense that I needed to do this. I needed to put the scene out, that we needed to have this conversation in punk about race and racism and um, in our scene and and to create this kind of informal record of our presence in the scene and also to create a critique of those practices within the punk scene that made us absent. Wynn put out two issues of Evolution of a Race Riot, and each zine was a thick volume of over 50 pages with dozens of contributions. These came from young people of color documenting their experiences in punk. Some of the most powerful writing, I think, in the Race Riot zine came from a lot of women of color who were who were part of Riot Girl and had had their hearts broken by it um, in the same way that I had my heart broken by punk at the time. These young women were disappointed with the way that race was talked about in Riot Girl or not talked about at all. I remember reading in a Riot Girl zine, you know, a bunch of anti-racist tips. And I remember like the tips included saying hi to people of color as you see them walking down the street. And, you know, like, just like make more friends of color. And it was just so, it was so weird. You know, there was a way in which it felt like this kind of pursuit of intimacy with people of color was just so, I mean, honestly, just creepy. This feels very relatable. Often white people will come up to me and say, hola and gracias. In 2023, it seems like everyone knows they have to talk about race, but in these kinds of interactions, it still feels like something's being extracted from me. Ramdashabik Seem didn't contribute to Mimi T. Wenzin, but they ended up writing a lot about race and gunk, even though they set out to write about skateboarding and music. I always say this with like talking about racism and white supremacy. It's so boring to me, honestly. It's a very boring topic. I wish there was something else to talk about. You know, it's like there's so many other things I'm interested in. But yeah, I, that was what I was living. So I was experiencing being a black person in a white supremacist world and just trying to, like, enjoy my life. <laughs> and then, you know, there's just all the haters that don't want you to be free and to be great. Both issues of Wynn's compilation zine are available online and the physical copies live on as well. You know, even now, I still hear from people who tell me that they have like a beat up copy of Race Riot that they got from their older brother's girlfriend's stash of zines that were in the attic or something. You know, I mean, I just hear about it still circulating and still functioning as a kind of touchstone for people. And that's really humbling for me. I feel like people are making zines again, too, you know? That didn't completely die out. It's true. Zines never went away. There's zine fests in cities around the world every year, and zines remain an integral part of punk. The Portland Zine Symposium has been going strong for more than 20 years. Sarah Shea Merck is a journalist, artist, and prolific zine maker. They make physical zines and also upload them to their website as PDFs so that anyone can download and print them out themselves. Like, I publish all my zines under a Creative Commons license, which means anyone can print and distribute them for non-commercial purposes, like teachers or activists. And I have this one zine that's a how-to-make-a-zine template, so it's a little guide, it's one page, how-to-make-a-zine, 
And people download it literally every day from all over the world. I just had someone download it today in Argentina who's working in a library there. I have people in Texas who are librarians, people who are teaching teen classes in Wisconsin. Literally every day somebody downloads it and is using it to make zines somewhere around the world. Bikini Kill drummer Toby Vale has resisted attempts to create online archives of her zine Jigsaw. For her, part of the beauty is that they capture a moment in time. I think of fanzines as being kind of like ephemeral. I don't know that they should last forever. It's cool to have a fanzine collection, but it's also cool to think of them in this way. as like it's like a message in the bottle and you throw it in the ocean and it goes out to somebody and then it's gone. Vale says she wants to see more people making zines. It's not just a relic. Paper is not just a relic. It's actually like a realm where people can interact outside of corporate control. And that is still valid and viable for like cultural democracy. Like what cultural democracy is, is it just means that you can make your own culture and your own community, you know, whatever you want it to be. You don't have to like buy it at the store. Zines are very much the embodiment of that DIY spirit and a way of marking a specific time and place. I was here. My perspective matters. They can also be a tool for political and cultural organizing. In the next episode, we'll dig deeper into the activism that was central to Riot Girl. What if we got those girls screaming in the audience to actually start a revolutionary subculture of young feminists and, you know, get them to all start bands? So when I heard this music and connected to these lyrics and everything that I heard about that was going on, it felt like this wake up call, like, oh, wait, we don't have to accept this. We can fight this. Like, we can be angry. I um, absorbed all of it and felt like that was part of my sort of political awakening. Starting a Riot is brought to you by Oregon Public Broadcasting and She Shreds Media. Thanks to all the members who make podcasts possible at OPB. This podcast is hosted by me, Fabi Reina. Julie Sabatier produced this podcast, and I'm going to hand the first part of these credits over to her. The songs you heard in this episode were Sneaking Into Your House by Emily Sassy Lime, Intermission 247 by Heavens to Betsy, Taught by Big Joni, I'd Rather Eat Glass by XQ17, and Remember by the Linda Lindas. Thank you to the band members and to Terror Bird and Kill Rockstars for allowing us to use those songs. You can find a playlist on our website, opb.org slash starting a riot. You should also go out, buy the music, and support the artists. Our editor for this project is Sage Van Wing. Our theme music is composed by Ray Ags. Listen to their solo projects and their bands, Trash Kit, Shopping, and Sacred Paws. Our sound engineers are Naleen Silva and Stephen Cray, all mixing and mastering by Stephen Cray. Thanks to Ryan Haas, Anna Griffin, Donald Orr, and Prakruti Bot for their listening ears. Also, thanks to JT Griffith and the team at Liminal Music for their help with music rights. Thanks to our Riot Girl Manifesto readers, Dina Barnwell, Jen Chavez, and Prakruti Bot. If you like our podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. It helps people find us. 